Welcome or welcome back to <laughs> The Smug Buds Presents Wes and Conversations about the films of Wes Anderson. This is the highly anticipated episode that longtime listeners will know even before I say it must be called Podcasteroid City. <laughs> I'm your host, Will, and I'm joined by your other host, Liz. Hi, Liz. Hey, Will. We're back at it, at our alternate podcast, part of the Smug Buds family. We're back. It's been not quite two years, yeah, I suppose. I less, think it was October time. October 2021 mm-hmm. uh, when we talked about the uh, the French Dispatch. and One of the first movies I saw, I think it was the first movie I saw in theaters post-pandemic. We're back to talk about Wes's new one. But before we do, is there any old business? Oh, you know there is, baby. Old business. Take it away. I saw Boy Genius. Oh, yes, of course. The it, concert. It was amazing. Awesome. Um, So we saw them at Meriwether Post Pavilion, and they had three opening acts, um, which was interesting. So we had um, Barty Strange, who's a local to the DMV. Dijon also he said he was from here but he didn't specifically say the DMV Claro Nepo baby and then Boy Genius do you know who Claro is no she's like a little mousy singer songwriter she was wearing like a t-shirt and a sweater vest and like mom jeans with like a ponytail but then she had a bunch of bangs that were just sort of in her face um and and she's someone's Nepo baby she's uh uh yeah, a little bit tangentially. Her, oh, I mean, I just mean like it's not her mom. Um, her aunt is Kate Bush. <laughs> oh, okay. So a, a Nepo niece. Yes. <laughs> cool. Um, which is funny. Um, the first two acts were great. So they played like hour-long sets. So the first two acts were great. I got to sit in the grass the whole time. I was sitting, it was really funny though, because everybody was very obviously there for Boy Genius, by which I mean you could tell by the things they were wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, like at one point I saw f- four girls that eat, two of them had a shirt that said always an angel and the other two had shirts that said never a god. And mm-hmm. they always walked in order. Like they passed me mm-hmm. like five times. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you are committed to this. <laughs> um the first time I was like, oh, that's funny. They're in order. And then by the third time I was like, oh, they're doing this on purpose. <laughs> um, there were these dudes sitting next to me, which were just like the straightest, whitest, mm. like most cisgender dudes I've ever seen in my life. The Will Hoffacker contingent. <laughs> no, worse than you. <laughs> mm, okay. I would like to see that. <laughs> they were like very broy. They were wearing like loose white t-shirts and track shorts. And then, like, Reeboks, which they took off for some reason. And mm. then, like, white sh- white socks that I guess are the cool sock length these days. They, like, go mid-calf, a little bit lower than mid-calf. Like, okay. above the ankle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could not, for the life of me, figure out why they were there. Because there were three dudes and one girl. And they just did not seem, obviously, straight men can like boy genius but they just this does not seem like their deal let me put it that way well yeah i'm i'm glad you brought this up because i i i have been uh, experiencing similar observations recently 
and it is related to our topic today. Mm-hmm. This did cross my mind going to the theater to see Asteroid City opening night. I, I, it was not a crowded theater, but I observed some other people who were also there. And I thought, oh, people who just a basic first impression. I bear, I haven't interact with them. Yeah. I've barely had a chance to observe them. They seem like they suck. That was my impression and, too. And that was my impression. And they're, and they're here for the thing that I'm here for. <laughs> and and do I suck? <laughs> and that and and I say that this is a pattern. I didn't say that, but I'm saying it because <laughs> it was the same thing when we went to see Joe Para last February. Oh, I it like, was like I feel like I liked the Joe Para people. The, I I like the Joe Para people fine. But um, there was a there was a bro contingency. Oh, the bro contingency in front of you were very funny, but they just felt so nerdy to me that I was like, "This tracks." It was the most that I've ever liked uh, being around strangers who are bros. Yes, that's it's fair. The le- it's the least <laughs> that I've ever minded it. Yeah, but still, it was like, oh, like I think these guys came from their fraternity <laughs> to see. Joe Para, like a very quiet, timid, uh, sensitive man who I'm like the biggest fan of. And I'm, and and it just I've said this before, but it's it's something that I'm like, I constantly have to be reminded of that, like, when I think I'm like every single time <laughs> I think I'm special for liking something. Oh, yeah. And then I get exposed to the other people who like it. And I'm like, damn. <laughs> I will say, we didn't ever talk about the Joe Para show, and the one thing I wanted, because we both, so for our listeners, um, before um, Will and Dana's wedding, which I officiated in February, we spent our Friday night uh, seeing Joe Para, and it was amazing. We were all together. It was just like a perfect sort of event. Mm-hmm. Um, but the funniest thing for me about that show um, was that he did so much crowd work, and yeah. the crowd was like too polite to engage <laughs> yeah. with him it was a like bit. a couple of times he kept being like oh, okay like what else do you guys think and uh-huh. we were all like oh we don't want to like you can keep doing your jokes and he was just kind of like oh oh guys like these are the jokes <laughs> yeah yeah more or less yeah no I, you got the sense that it was a uh a, 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 an above average crowd on the metric of politeness yeah and uh and, and I don't I, I think almost no one wanted to be perceived as a heckler at, at the Joe Para show. Yeah. And really saying almost anything, even if it isn't derogatory, could come across as heckling. Yeah. So. <laughs> um but to go back to those dudes. Uh yeah, yeah. they were there to see Dijon. I was right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. So they all of a sudden, like, Dijon is playing, and I look over, and they're just like, Dijon was like, I th- have not actually read how anybody else has described Dijon, but I would describe them, well, Dijon is like a man, but he has a band with him, and mm-hmm. I would describe Dijon, the Dijon performance as, like, a hip-hop jam band. Okay. So, like, Kenny pointed out that they all looked like they were on a panel at a conference, because they were almost mm-hmm. all sitting behind a... um table <laughs> yeah uh-huh. and and Dijon had um like microphones and like different knobs he was turning but then there was also like people playing guitar and bass but they were also sitting behind mm. the table 
the drummer looked exactly like Bo Burnham and was wearing a <laughs> sweater. Um, the funniest thing about this is that I uh, had so our friend uh, Becca was at the show and I ended up not seeing her just because she was actually had seated seats and I didn't. But yeah. Becca and I were texting the whole time and I was like, Bo Burnham on the drums. Bo Burnham was actually at the show. What? Because he's dating Phoebe Bridgers. And that doesn't oh. mean he would be at the show. But he's yeah. he's at he was actually at the show. So it was just mm-hmm. very funny that like we were making these jokes about, oh, he joined this band to be closer to Phoebe, and then it was just like, <laughs> no, he is actually here. It was an indoor venue, I'm assuming. No. Oh, so Bo Burnham outside. <laughs> But anyway, that was all great. And then very casual. I just mean like, you know, the openings were all fine. They were all casual. The one funny thing I will say about Claro is that she definitely has a cross. She ha- There were thousands of people at this show. Mm-hmm. So the way the Meriwether Post Pavilion is set up, I know you were sort of joking, is <laughs> there's a stage. And sort it's, of. <laughs> it's, it's, jun- it's sunk into the ground. Mm-hmm. And then there's like stadium seating. Not Not that, maybe not that extreme of an mm-hmm. angle but like angled seating there's a, yep. there's like a pit area mm-hmm. then there's yep. seating and then there's the actual covered area ends and there's a lawn that's also mm. on an angle yeah. i was on yep. the lawn okay and so um there's like thousands of people at the show and i would say like 50 percent of them were like all in on claro mm. like knew every word at one point she started singing a song and people screamed so loud that she started laughing and she was like, I'll give you a second to process that this is the song I'm playing. I have no idea what song it was. Mm-hmm. And then she pers- continued to sing along. And apparently the people were so enthusiastic that it one of the verses, she also started laughing again. <laughs> um, Boy Genius went on around 9.15. So it was like long. They started at 5. Yeah. Um, and just like, I mean, really tight, like really tight um, filming that they did for the big screens, which is mostly what mm-hmm. I could see. Um, really tight set. I knew the set list, um, though the next show, they ended up changing the set list because they added a song that's an unreleased song. Oh my God. It's either called, they. it's listed as boyfriends on the set list, but um, I've heard people say it's called What About Your Boyfriends? Mm. Um, because the set list, it says boyfriends on the set list, but a lot of the songs have shortened names on the set list. Yeah, so. it's normal. It's normal for there to be an abbreviated title in that context yeah yeah um so i did not see the new song but i was honestly glad because the way that they ended our set was by ending with i don't know if i talked about this on the podcast but because i don't know if the set list was out yet but they end with the three songs that are from their individual albums that the other Mm. two guest on Mm. so it's please stay by lucy um favor by julian and then graceland too and um, I prefer that as an encore. <laughs> the, That's cool. The encore for the sh- the new encore is um, mm-hmm. Catch Him Idaho and Salt in the Wound. Salt in the Wound and then Catch Him Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a fi- which is how previously they ended their main set. Yeah. And so I preferred the main set ending that way, and then having this extra thing be feel something like truly extra because it's not really boy genius. It's mm-hmm. boy. It's like each of them plus boy genius. Yeah, bonus. Um, but yeah, really, really good. Also, as a note, all of those songs are written about when Julian relapsed in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it ends up being the sort of, like, of course, these are the songs they're playing because 
they're on they sing on them so it makes sense for them to sing them together but it, yeah. it also ends up being this triptych about julian's mm-hmm. 2019 relapse mm-hmm. where like in please stay julian is saying like you know she lists these things of things to do like you know change your name um call me or never talk to me again but please stay. like she's basically begging julian not to kill herself lucy says that yeah, yeah lucy says that and then julian song is just about like you know how am i supposed why should i stay alive <laughs> and mm-hmm. then graceland 2 is about julian saying you know phoebe has the line but julian obviously said it um i know i uh lived through it all to get to this moment um where they're all together again mm-hmm. um so just like a really really beautiful little triptych way to end yeah the set. right um, that sounds like a, a neat thing to see. Yeah, yeah. It was. It just felt really special. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was. It was amazing. I'm. I. I kind of. It feels. It. I kind of can't believe it happened mm-hmm. because it was just so good. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially because the week before that, I had seen this little pop punk band that I've been very into called Loveless, and that mm. was maybe the weirdest show I've ever been to. Okay. Um. Which just, I won't go too much into this, but, like, I love this band. I mean, it's this, like, young guy. He's, like, 26, and he's got this uh, beautiful hair and just this amazing voice, huge range. Um, And I saw them, and he, like, I, I give them I give them a couple of things. They came up during the pandemic. Julian's also a producer, so all the songs he's writing, he's also sort of fiddling with. Um... And so I don't think he totally necessarily wrote the songs that he was touring with to be toured or he didn't think that far ahead because I don't think he thought I would he would ever necessarily tour them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't sing like a third of the songs. Hmm. You're like, what does that mean? I mean, he would like take the mic and then turn it to the crowd. But for like verses, huh. like my favorite song of theirs is a song called Lighthouse and the whole first verse Plus, like, part of the second part of the verse, he just held the mic up to the crowd. I was like, bro, I didn't come here to sing along to nothing. I came hmm. here to hear you sing. Yeah. <laughs> um, It's just very confusing. I'm so confused. That's odd. I, I, The other thing I'll say to give this dude some empathy is that, like, I think that his voice is a little bit hurt. And this was maybe how mm-hmm. he was coping. But I was just like, oh, no, like... You can't yeah. not, and the person that opened for him was this person named, this is her legal name, because Kenny was like, did you pick that? I was like, no, no, I think this is what she was born with. Her name's Taylor Acorn. Okay. Um, but she had like a Haley Williams level of control over her voice. Hmm. And she was the opener. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, she is like hitting all of these notes. Like, it is, she is like, everything is so tight. It's so clear and crisp. And so to have that be the opener and have it be contrasted with Julian, who I know can sing, just not singing, like not even singing poorly, just like not doing it. I was like, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it was very, it was really wonderful to see Boy Genius, especially after having this, the weirdest, I've been seeing so many bands in so many weird venues. I've never seen somebody do that. Nice. Yeah. So that's Liz's old business because two months ago we talked about album of the year, Boy Genius. Mm-hmm. Last month, we talked about Game of the Year. Yep. Really, really quickly, following up on our Tears of the Kingdom conversation, 
I think I am done playing it as of last night. <gasps> uh when we talked uh on the podcast i said my next main story mission was defeat ganondorf the next day i defeated ganondorf (laughs) and then i've spent the last few weeks doing other stuff yeah and i say i think i'm done because last night i did the last of the shrines oh wow and i got the i got the reward that the game gives you which is super weird what is it <laughs> do you want to know yeah i'm never gonna get all the shrines uh i can tell you how i did it if you uh if you want to know yeah. um i i managed to do it without looking anything up online about where to find them yeah and um it's actually pretty easy but um the reward is an armor that unlike all the armor in the game that i know of changes you know, it's either a headpiece, a middle piece, mm-hmm. or a bottom piece. Mm-hmm. You get an armor that when you put it on, it's all three at once. And you can't interchange. You can't add something else on top or something, yeah. And it makes Link look like a Zonai. But like a little bit like closer to being a human. Because he doesn't have, like, enormous ears. It doesn't make him huge? No, it doesn't make him taller, and it doesn't make (laughs) his ears enormous. It it honestly looks like like he's, I don't know. Cosplaying? Yeah, like Link Link in a, like, amateurish cosplay. Yeah. Furry uh, situation. (laughs) That's really funny, Will. What does it, does it give you any bonuses? Not that I can tell. <laughs> it seems to be purely aesthetic. That's so funny. It's quite strange. So, uh, yeah, I think I may be finally ready to move on. And uh, that brings us to uh, this month's uh, episode of the podcast for June 2023. It is about the movie of the year. Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. Yes. Um, screenplay by Wes Anderson, story by Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola, uh, one of his, uh, frequent collaborators. Uh, I saw this movie a few nights ago. Uh, I saw it on Thursday night because, uh, Dana went out of town, uh, on Friday. Uh, Mm -hmm. she's returning tomorrow, which is Monday. As we're recording this, um, you saw it uh, just last night. Yeah, it's been less than twenty four hours. Um, do do we want to get the like elephant in the room out of the way and just express how the degree to which we liked it or loved it? Or uh, can we pause that for one second? Sure. I just want to talk really quick about. I want to know what, do you know what trailers you saw? Um, yeah, I I think. I just want to mention really quickly, I'm always curious to see, now that I'm like, every time seeing these movies, seeing them in theaters, I'm always curious to see what trailers they play because Wes Anderson movies are so specific. Oh, I thought you meant trailers for this movie, but no. yeah, to- totally, uh, yes. Um, I saw the Gran Turismo trailer, which made me 
laugh so hard. I cannot believe that's going to be a real movie. And I also feel like the trailer that I saw didn't say this, but the or if I did, I blacked out when they said it. But it said it on the one when I showed it to Kenny. It's based on a true story. Have you mm-hmm. seen this trailer? Unfortunately, I've seen it three times. God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> the middle time, not this past time, but the time before, I saw an extended version where they um, introduced the trailer to you with a bunch of interviews oh. with cast members and the real guy who it's based on. Okay. So it's it's as if the introduction is a reaction to people seeing the trailer and saying, this is stupid. <laughs> and then they were like, no, 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 this really happened. Here, we'll prove it. And they have to show that to you before you see the trailer. That's fucking hilarious. Mm-hmm. So that was the first one. I then saw Landscape with Invisible Hand. I don't know what that is. It's either going to be, I mean, this is maybe not true. Maybe it's just going to be middling. It's either going to be like good, like really good, or it's going to mm-hmm. be like a movie version of Black Mirror. Okay. The premise is that um, these two kids wear these little like, it almost looks like the little part that the Borg have in Star Trek, like right above mm-hmm. their eyebrow. And they are being paid by these aliens to um, like broadcast their lives, like stream their lives. And when they are broadcasting their lives, they're supposed to be in love. And then they get in trouble because they're not actually in love and they have to give back all the money that they made. Mm-hmm. And then the aliens are like very goopy looking and funny looking. But like... I will, when the trailer started, I was like, this is dumb. And then by the end of the trailer, I was like, maybe this is less dumb than I thought it was. And maybe this mm-hmm. is good. But I, tr- I feel like I cannot tell mm. until I actually see it. Slash, I don't know if I will actually see it because <laughs> it looks yeah. sort of dumb. But maybe it won't be. Maybe it feels like it's going to come down to the editing. Looks like it's based on a book. I've just been Googling it as you've yes, been talking. Yes, it is based on a book. Yes. I then saw Barbie. I wish I had seen that. Perfect. A per- I, Barbie actually made a lot of sense to me as something to see before this movie. Totally, yeah. Um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, which seems to not include a wedding. Oh, well, yeah. Well, sure, yeah. <laughs> Unfor- unfortunately, we did see that. And unfortunately, there was a 2, and the 2 came along at a time when you would sequelize it just by putting a 2 on it rather than say what we would do now is change the word wedding it would be called my big fat greek reunion or something like that um but uh it's not a sequel in that tradition it's a sequel in the older (laughs) tradition where you keep the words and there's no wedding yeah i was shocked to see that it was just called that when there seemed to be no wedding um and then drive away dolls which i would like to see that's the ethan cohen movie yes Yes, I, I I was teetering on the fence watching that trailer, and the conclusion that I've come to is I, I am I would put my chips on. That is, the 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 trailer is taking a a, a movie that I will like and think is good and interesting, and the trailer is making the mass market advertisement yes, for I it so which too. makes it look worse than it actually is that was my feeling as well especially because i just know and like a lot of the actors in that enough mm-hmm. that i was like okay um margaret Quayley is that also, the one lady 
of a survey. I I don't know. I maybe. She's, no, I was just. Oh, go ahead. Damn it. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, the trailer is clearly doing something disingenuous, which is front-loading it with Pedro Pascal because mm-hmm. everyone loves him so much. And he's clearly only in one scene yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Um, Margaret Qualley is in it, who um, Kenny was like, oh, I know Margaret Qualley. And he's seen her and stuff. And he was like, she's a famous person. She's so-and-so's daughter. And I was like, who's that? And Kenny was like, another actress that's just as beautiful as she is. But I think she's the woman from Groundhog's Day. I'm looking it up. Yes, Annie McDowell is her mother. That's right. <laughs> but yes, I just wanted, do you remember what, if there were, was there any other trailers that you saw? I'm just always so curious about this because it just seems like an impossible task if you don't have just like a bunch of A24 shit lined up. <laughs> Driveaway, is it called Driveaway Dolls? Driveaway Dolls, yeah terrible title um (laughs) driveaway dolls was the like the main one that i remember seeing Uh because it was the first time i'd even heard of the movie yeah um and obviously i'm interested because it's ethan cohen um but yeah that's another thing it's like okay now now we're 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 getting to see ethan's side of the cohen brothers break up Mm. which is another reason why I'm thinking maybe this won't be as good as I want it to be. Yeah, that's fair. Um, And I'm sure we saw one or two other trailers. And if I remember what they were, I'll tell you. But right now I don't. That's fine. That gives me the the pulse I need. So yes, what are, now that we're here. Oh, we didn't give our baseline. I'm kidding. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> for, for a baseline, please listen to any of our other Wes Anderson themed episodes. There are 11 of them. What was your feeling? I'll just get it out of the way. No longer any suspense. And then we can get into the conversation. I love this movie. I think it's great. What do you think? I think I need to see it again. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I felt this way with um, French Dispatch, too. Yep. Where I... There's so much going on that I feel like, and I'm trying to absorb all of it. Like, it's hard for me to just let go and, like, watch the plot or whatever because there's so much going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to absorb all of it that I um, think I will feel the same way. Because the second time I watched The French Dispatch, I felt immensely warmer towards it immediately. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way about this one, which is that I think I will love it. When I see it again, right now, I let me put it this way. When I got home last night, I was like, oh, like, as I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, my God, I need to read a Wikipedia synopsis of this movie. And I said to Kenny, I was like, I need to read a Wikipedia synopsis of this because there were parts of it that I just did not know what was happening. And I thought, oh, God, Will's going to think I'm so dumb <laughs> for not being able to follow this plot. Um, uh, but I put would... it together now. I mostly knew what was happening. I just would get a little bit um, off. I I thought that I was further away than I actually was. Yeah, that wouldn't it, that wouldn't be very fair of me if I thought you were dumb. <laughs> it's a little bit unfair of you to put that on me. No, I didn't mean that was my own self conscious speaking. <laughs> Understood. Yeah, understandable. <laughs> um, yeah, I do think that the movie is 
complex, but at the same time, not very hard to follow. It it throw it throws a lot at you, but it's also, um. I don't think it's doing anything to confuse you or obfuscate anything. There were two scenes in particular, or two things in particular, that confused me until I just read about them and made sure that I knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. The first was that when the car breaks down at the very beginning, yeah, I thought that they were there because their car broke down. Yeah. But they were not there because their car broke down. Their car just happened to break down conveniently where they were going. That's true. And that was confusing to me for a little bit until I sort of realized what was happening. Uh-huh. That's fair. And then the second one was in the black and white making of the play shots. Mm-hmm. The one where Scarlett Johansson is on um, the train. Mm-hmm. I was like wait, why is she on a train? Like, I was so confused as to what I was looking at because, and what it, what it is, is that she's, they're showing like a reenactment of her deciding to come back and actually perform in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I just, I could not understand where this was landing in terms of, like, the timeline and what exactly was happening. And, and because the kid who plays Woodrow, mm-hmm. he was the understudy. But then, like, that's because he ends up becoming, they say then, like, he becomes the character. But in right. that scene, they were, like, saying he was the understudy. I was like, he's not the understudy. He's the guy who plays it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was just, like, those were the two places I got sort of mostly confused and then had to, like, once I just read about it and just somebody just explained it to me, I was like, okay, now I understand it. <laughs> yeah, if I, underst- if I understood it correctly, and I'm pointing this out be- just because I didn't hear this in the way that you just characterized it uh-huh. after getting over your confusion, my understanding is that the entire cast and crew is on that train. Oh, okay, that makes more sense to me then. And they are on their way to a city where they are going to mount the production. I actually think that that's not what's happening. Because I think at some point they then say that she got there two hours before the curtain call. She, Yeah, I, I don't think that that's necessarily when the train arrived. See, that's confusing. <laughs> I think that that's just to create a sort of like, okay, she, mm -hmm. but I I think the reason why she's on the train and also the understudy is on the train and the understudy has notes from the director, Mm -hmm. at least I think it was the, it was the director played by, um, Adrian Brody Brody. and, uh, (laughs) I'll get back to that in a second, but I, 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 I understood it to mean the director is there as well. He's just in a different car and rather than coming himself, he sent the understudy because they're in a fight and they're not talking to each other, mm-hmm. but he has a message for him, sends the other understudy. The understudy makes such a good impression that she pulls her weight to have him bumped up from understudy to the, the one who actually does the part. Yeah. Um, and I believe the host, played by Brian Cranston, says that they says something. It is confusing, 
and I barely recall it. Mm -hmm. But something about they had taken a flight from one place to another place and then they had to take a train to get to their ultimate destination Mm -hmm. where they were going to put on the production. Okay, yes. And then presumably it was not until two hours before curtain call that they knew that Midge Campbell would perform. Yeah. Or the actress Uh, playing Midge Campbell. (laughs) No. Yes. Yes. You're right. Yeah. Now, uh, there is one source of confusion for me watching the film Mm -hmm. that I resolved midway through that is totally on me Mm -hmm. and not at all on the movie. Although maybe slightly, I will place a little bit of blame on casting. Oh, okay. And, and that is um, the first person we're introduced to is the host, Brian Cranston, who introduces us to the writer who's played by Edward Norton. Mm-hmm. And then in a later black and white behind the scenes segment, we are introduced to the director played by Adrian Brody. Mm-hmm. It is not until much later in the film when Edward Norton and Adrian Brody first appear in a scene together. Mm-hmm. Until that point, I had forgotten that Edward Norton and Adrian Brody are different people. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. And I and I, that's mostly on me, but I do think it's a little bit on casting. Yeah. And I do think that those two performers are a little bit interchangeable. Yeah. And I think that that's just my personal hang up, but also maybe it's based on something about them. Yeah. And they're playing very similar parts. Yes, for sure. And they're relegated to the these parts of the movie that are special. And so when we were introduced to Adrian Brody, the director, I just thought, oh, that's the writer character. Yeah. And I forgot, no, that's Edward Norton and that's not Adrian Brody. I also want to say that um, something I think a general comment I have about the movie is something that I think Wes Anderson specifically would hate, which is that the whole time I was watching the movie... Like I said, I was like, okay, so first off, I feel like Wes Anderson is making movies that ask you to be rewatched. I don't think Wes Anderson would hate that. I think he would be like, yeah, that watch more movies. You know what I mean? Fair enough, yeah. Um, but I think that um, the thing that Wes Anderson would hate is that I think I need to watch these movies, like, on my laptop. <laughs> mm, yeah. I feel like every time I watch one of his movies, I need to be, like, very close to the screen so I can, like, see everything. Right. And I think that, like, he would hate the idea that, like, you know, I think he would want, like, cinema, you know, like. Well, it reminds me of a Letterboxd review that I saw, not for Asteroid City, but Uh for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse in the last couple of weeks. Um, So someone on Letterboxd give it. I don't know, four stars or something Mm -hmm. and wrote, sorry, I don't remember who wrote this. Sorry, I'm not attributing it, but whoever they were, they, they wrote something like a great movie. I can't wait to watch it on 0.75 speed with subtitles. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And uh, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of reasons why you might say that about this movie. For me, the main one is monologues that are jam-packed with very careful um, verbiage. Mm -hmm. 
spoken very quickly. Jeffrey Wright. So, Are you thinking about Jeffrey Wright's? I'm thinking about Jeffrey Wright, but also Edward Norton yeah. and Brian Cranston, um, and and others. There, there were there were many moments in the movie where I was just like. These lines are just washing over me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not appreciating each phrase because they're coming rapid fire one after the other. And if I rewatched it and watched it with subtitles, mm-hmm. I'm sure I will find something that I really enjoy that was just a vibe to me seeing it the first time. Yeah, Jeffrey Wright's monologue specifically, I bring I bring up his specifically because, um, so I mean, I'm sort of stepping to a bigger point to talk about a smaller point, but this is the second time that Wes Anderson has basically said, I'm going to make a movie that is in a different genre than a movie. So French, French Dispatch is a literary magazine <laughs> okay. or, a, or a magazine, a newspaper, you know what I mean? Yes, I see. And this is a play. And this is not just a play, though it is a play, though it's it's very much a play because we have these title cards that tell us exactly what act we're in, what scenes we're in. They're numbered. Um, they come up more frequently than I even, I mean, I sort of knew immediately that they would, but um, I assumed that it would be like act one and instead it's not. It's act one, scenes one to three. The second time it happened and it was still act one, I was like, oh, this reorients me. Yes, exactly. But... It's also this very specific genre about like a TV production, uh, a TV made for TV production of a play that has other things interspersed with it. Yes. And so when you have Jeffrey Wright, which I think is super interesting, it makes a lot of sense to me that Wes Anderson, who loves um, like objects, you know what I mean? He loves visual things, but he specifically loves text and objects mm-hmm. that that would morph into saying let's look at the conventions of a genre that isn't mm-hmm. a movie and put the conventions right. of that genre into a thing. Jeffrey Wright's speech, he, um, I forget what he calls it. Um, I forget if he calls it like a memoir or a story or something, or if he just says, this is my speech. I think he calls it my speech. But he s- starts by saying chapter one right. and then reads like, you know, says like two sentences. And it, it actually very much almost feels like a spoken word poem or something mm-hmm. not in like a tacky way i mean no offense to spoken word poetry but like not in like a kitschy way mm-hmm. but where like i feel like i can see i almost felt like i could see that on the page more than i could even hear him reading it mm-hmm. um that said i hardly remember any of it <laughs> mm-hmm. um but yeah so i think that's part of the like i agree with you that that yeah i would like to read i feel like there's a lot of things that i missed because of the way it was delivered. But that said, I also feel like this movie has some of the most dead air. And I don't mean that as like mm. a criticism of any no, Wes Anderson good. movie. Right. Yes. Yeah. No, there, there, th- that is one of the strengths of this movie. Glad you pointed it out. Cause I don't think this is in my notes. That one of the strengths of this movie is that it does take beats to where you just sit in it mm-hmm. and it's not rapid fire. Uh, bring you the next thing. And that's very play oriented to me. Mhm. Mhm. Because a lot of not all the time because it happens in like the perform the color performance of the play part too, but Right. They also they very much do a lot of stuff with like the lighting where like you pause on a character and one character's lit and one or two characters are not, but those characters are just standing very still. 
Right. <laughs> um, I want to say two other things about casting that the points that you've brought up have made me think of. And they're about Jeffrey Wright and Brian Cranston. Yes. And and I just wanted to say that uh, this is so this is the second time, I think, for each of them mm-hmm. that they've worked with Wes Anderson. And for Jeffrey Wright, the first time was the French Dispatch. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how he is the highlight of that movie because his character and his performance have so much uh, pathos. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny to bring back Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wright after he did that in the French Dispatch and to have him play a character who is basically purely a comedy character. Yes. <laughs> like, he's in many scenes, but he mostly does jokes or things that are funny. And his big scene is this monologue that you already talked about. Mm-hmm. And um, it is, it's it's funny. It's, it's intentionally funny, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of a funny juxtaposition. I'm saying funny a lot. Uh, I don't sound particularly intelligent making this point, I think. <laughs> but um, isn't it a little bit odd um, that uh, <laughs> that this part is for this actor after what we saw him do in the last one? Yeah. But but then also, I want to say, so Brian Cranston, of course, he uh did one of the main voices in Isle of Dogs. Right, yes. So he's reuniting with Wes Anderson, but for the first time on camera, live action. Mm -hmm. And I think it is funny, sorry to say it again, that he plays this part of the host, because as you pointed out, if the play is the play, then what are the segments about the play? Mm -hmm. And it seems like they must be television. Yes. And, And Brian Cranston's character is called The Host. And it seems to me almost insulting to put Brian Cranston in this part <laughs> because he's a TV guy yeah. who has more or less failed at making the transition to movies. Yeah. So I just, I, I don't think that it's meant to be read that way necessarily, but I think intentionally or not, there's something a little bit meta going on here mm-hmm. that like the part that is framed as being more like television than a movie is the part that only Brian Cranston <laughs> uh, would play. I have some casting notes. Sure. Um, the triplets were amazing. They are. Yes. They and were, I'm glad you said it. I looked it up and they were six when they shot it in 2021 or they had like just turned six. Cause I think their birthday's in June and I think they finished mm-hmm. kindergarten and went to go film this. Yeah. If I'm guessing, which I could be wrong. But just looking at them, I think that it's a set of identical twins and a third triplet. I believe you are exactly correct. Really? Mm-hmm. I, that is incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually knew a set of triplets. I mean, as babies, I was like 23, who were, it was an IVF situation where um, mm-hmm. the mother and the father were both pretty old. Um, when I say pretty old, I mean, the father was the same age as my mother. And I said to him, you could have a me. And my mom did not give birth when she was young. And he just went, oh God, what have I gotten into? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's cool. Um. A Scott Ackerman type, if you will. (laughs) Yes. Um, I wanted to say that Tony, speaking of characters that it's like, oh, this part, he does a really good job, but. Why did they have to make this one specific decision? Remember how with Tony Revolori mm-hmm. in the last one, I was like, 
I absolutely agree with you that his scene is amazing, but like he's one of the only people of color and he doesn't have any lines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this, in this, he's in this as Jeffrey Wright's like right hand man. They have a specific word for him. Mm-hmm. And at, he was in like three scenes and didn't say anything. I was like, does this motherfucker not get any lines again? But he does. He did. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, cool. And he holds the big check. He holds the big check. <laughs> he he definitely felt as much as it as much a part of the movie as anybody else that's part of the ensemble, if that makes sense. That isn't like as, Jason yeah, Schwartzman. Like, al- almost as much as say like Tilda Swinton. Yes. Who like of all the people who are in this movie that is jam packed with characters played by recognizable people, just like every Wes Anderson movie for mm-hmm. many years. Tilda Swinton is the one that I have, I keep having to remind myself is in this movie. So I also had a note about Tilda Swinton. Okay. Which was that she, this is the most normal character I've ever seen her play in my life. She she doesn't play two people as far as we know. <laughs> which um, is rare for her now. Rare for her. Her, her hair is very normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when I, I actually also sort of thought like, oh, it's so funny that in a, episode of this where or not an episode like a uh iteration of a wes anderson movie where so many of these peoples are like people are like very specifically caricatures like we have cowboys and we have um these nerds or whatever we have an army guy um it's very funny that she's playing a scientist but like a very sort of like straight dead laced scientist i also wanted to mention um jeff goldblum (laughs) Okay, so this is another way of getting into the conversation about talking about it because yes, go ahead. There, there's a prologue and then there's the opening credits, mm-hmm. and the the prologue was just like a just like a swelling of joy for me mm-hmm. of like wow, this is what we're in for, and then the opening credits were the first moment to get like a laugh out of me and Dana because we were watching the names go by and I love this. I think I've said this before. Every name has an as. Yes. Everyone. Yes. And I think the last of those names is is Jeff Goldblum as the alien. It says, and it's the and, Mm -hmm. and Jeff Goldblum as the alien. And we, and we clocked that. It didn't go by too quickly for us. We, we I saw it. I and swear we to God, to he each did other. that specifically so that you would see Jeff Goldblum as the alien. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the 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 mirth that I felt. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I don't. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie, obviously there's a lot of spoilers. But I feel like this is the biggest spoiler. Well, it is, and it isn't. <laughs> here's here's here. You're talking about the alien. Mm-hmm. So so here's um. The, the 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 primary way that I thought that we might get into the conversation about what happens in the movie mm-hmm. is just comparing what I knew from watching the trailer to what I didn't know and I learned sure. actually watching the movie. Yeah. And I I think here here's what was a given based on the trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the people who are in the movie are in the trailer. We understand Jason, you know, we understand the desert setting, Mm -hmm. the main character being Jason Schwartzman, his circumstances that Tom Hanks is his father-in-law. 
that the car breaks down, that he's got four kids, that the mother is dead, that he hasn't told the kids. All of that is in the trailer. Plus, also, the spaceship is in the trailer, Mm -hmm. and you don't see the alien in the trailer, but someone says there is an alien in the trailer. All of that is, you know, if you've seen the trailer, you are going in with that foreknowledge. Mm -hmm. The big thing that I don't think that the trailer gave away at all or even hinted at is the framing device. Yes. That it is a play and that we will get these black and white TV-like segments about the making of the play. And when when it begins with a prologue introducing you to that it's just the same as what you said about the act breaks Mm -hmm. where it's like the second time it happens you're like oh it's still act one and this is happening again same thing i saw the prologue and i was like great prologue and then it happens again and i'm like oh more than a prologue and then it becomes even more than just more than a prologue it becomes more than a framing device yes because it be it it by the end of the film, what was just a second narrative that frames the primary narrative mm-hmm. in basically intrudes on the primary yes. narrative so that mm-hmm. so that it like supersedes it um b- b- before giving us the epilogue, which puts us back in the reality of the play mm-hmm. before saying goodbye. Um, so now I could branch off into a number of ways of talking about this, but I just, I, uh, that was helpful for me comparing what I know now to what I knew before seeing the movie. That was helpful for, for me for, for sort of, um, I don't know, recapping the movie and for myself in my head and just sort of taking stock of everything. Um, I have two more tiny little notes Yeah. before we talk about other things, which is that we get my favorite, in terms of casting, we get uh, Sue George. Yes, I knew you would love that. And Jarvis Cocker. Mm-hmm. From musicians Fantastic in this movie. Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so pleased about that. And then also, um, the girl who is um, the love interest of Woodward. Yes. Um, they were giving me that girl at one point. I was like, man, this couple feels so familiar to me. Mm. And it wasn't like an overall like one to one sort of feeling, but like her face in certain shots looked especially familiar to me. And then I realized that they were giving me like huge, maybe Funke, mm. George Michael vibes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting that you say that because now you've given me a reason to say something. From my last minute research this morning mm-hmm. that I was not going to bring up until maybe towards the end. But um, I was, uh, why did I stumble across this? I think I was, I was trying to learn about what's next. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to learn about the Henry Sugar movie. And if we know anything about what's going to come after that. And... Basically, what I saw was um, many outlets saying all we know about Wes Anderson's next feature film is it is apparently going to star Michael Sarah. Yes, I did see that. Yes. And, and one outlet that I saw said 
Michael Sarah parentheses who was supposed to be in Asteroid City. Really? But I cannot find any outlet that will say what who? part he would have played. <laughs> because I also and this this is one of those things that I there's a couple of things that happened from when the movie started to now, which is that obviously Bill Murray was gonna be in this movie and got COVID and couldn't do it. Can we talk about that really quickly? Yes. Well that's what that's what I wanted to talk about because when I was watching it, I was like, oh, Tom Hanks is the Bill Murray character. Exactly what I thought. But, and is, but it, I feel incorrect. like that's wrong. Yes. But the it is wrong. But the reason you know I, why? No. The reason I thought that, though, was because that character was so, like, mildly horny, which okay, felt like so, more Bill Murray than Tom Hanks to me. <laughs> well, I just, I just thought it was natural that, okay, knowing the history of these actors with Wes Anderson, going back to Rushmore. Yeah. And also Tom Hanks having never worked with Wes Anderson before. Yeah. I just I just assumed, oh, when Bill Murray got that that the Tom Hanks part was written for Bill Murray, and when Bill Murray got sick, Tom Hanks replaced him. Mm-hmm. That's not true, and it was never true. And I looked this up, and Wes Anderson has said publicly what part Bill Murray was supposed to play. What was it? Because I couldn't find it. <laughs> Oh, okay. Do you do you want to hazard a guess before it? Because it's Steve it's, Carell's character. Correct. Oh yes. my god! That, I mean, that's just the only one that makes sense. You're exactly right. Yes the 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 hotel manager part was written for Bill Murray, and when Bill Murray got COVID, Wes Anderson goes into excruciating detail in an interview about how that part that character is is not in a great deal of the movie. He only has right. scenes with certain characters, not others. And Bill Murray, in addition to being quite sick, the COVID protocol, the timing of the COVID protocols meant that the characters that he was supposed to perform with would have wrapped right. by the time yeah. he could. So, uh, and, and, and Wes Anderson is sort of apologetic about this. He's, he's, he qualifies, he says like, I know you're never supposed to say who a part was meant for when that person didn't play the part. I, I know think that, that the these are like a little bit extenuating though. But he said like Steve Carell came in last minute and you nailed know, did it a great and did a great job. And I was, we were very glad to have him. And he says something like yeah. that. And he is, and he is quite funny. It's a pretty small part, Steve Carell's part. Um, it is another like comedy character um, who, who, yeah, that ba- basically he's just there to do some some bits. Yeah, uh, and uh, and he does it well, and it's and it's funny. The other thing is that, and I feel like we talked about this on the podcast, and I should have re-listened to it, but I didn't get a chance to. Um, I feel like initially, Asteroid City was set to come out on Netflix. I had so, this in my head that there was a Netflix Wes Anderson movie. And that is the Henry Sugar movie. Okay. I, maybe I just got them confused then. Okay. That's all. I was also about. reading about this just this morning. And to recap what I remember, Wes Anderson says, going all the way back to when he was making the Royal Tenenbaums, that's when he met Roald Dahl's widow. Right. Befriended her, I assume. And has had conversations with her about adapting Dahl's work. Mm-hmm. And the one that he always really wanted to do was Henry Sugar. Mm-hmm. 
and had an understanding with Dahl's widow that he would be allowed to do that. Okay. That 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 was more or less his. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then somewhere along the way, the estate fell to Dahl's grandson. And in, I think, 2021, Netflix bought, I think it's called, like, the Roald Dahl Story Company or something really stupid like that. Uh-huh. So, basically, what the way Wes Anderson tells the story is, like, by the time I finally solved the problem of how I was going to adapt this book that I love. Yeah. Netflix had the rights and there was <laughs> no other way to do it. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. And he basically all but says, I don't want to be making a Netflix movie, but I have <laughs> to I have to if I want to make this and I've always wanted to make this. He's also so here's the other things that we know about this. Uh-huh. It's supposed to come out this fall. Okay. I it it it's uh, uh, specifically for Netflix. Yes, and it is not a feature. Interesting. Okay. Wes Anderson said, "I think his quote. I'm not reading this, but from my memory, I think his quote is, it's like 37 minutes or something.' <laughs> so it's 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 a long short. Yeah. Okay. Okay, it's a novella. More or less, yeah. <laughs> it is also, I think, I haven't read the book, but I think it is also an anthology. Interesting. Despite being a short film. And I think there is a small cast. And I think the cast is, the. I, I think the way it works is the same cast is in all of the stories in the anthology. Oh, play, yes, because this is the one that di- has Dev Patel in it. Playing different characters. Yes. It has Dev Patel, Benedict Cumberbatch. As Henry ben, Sugar. Ben Kingsley, mm-hmm. Richard Day, and Rupert Friend, who is in Asteroid City. Yes, I had not seen Montana. him before that. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Ralph and Dev- Fine? Ralph and Rafe and Rafe Fine. Rafe! I knew that there was something weird about his name. I've, I've, and it was I've the heard, last name. It was the first name, not the last name. I've heard some people say that it actually is Ralph, but I don't know. But he's playing Rold. Honestly, appropriate casting. Both have names that people get wrong all the time. Makes sense. Yeah. Um. Okay. Those were yeah. Those were just the little things I wanted to talk about with that because I was like, am I misremembering something? Like, I swear to God, there was a Netflix like movie. I thought that this was it, but I guess obviously it's not. So yeah, I, what, can we, okay, there's a lot of things we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Do, can we talk about the set? Yeah, great, great thing to talk about because this was one of my first impressions. So, so the, the movie basically gives you like three first impressions mm-hmm. right in a row. The prologue, which introduces you to the framing device, mm-hmm. the opening credits, and then before any dialogue really starts, there's like, a long establishing tracking shot showing you like each and every major thing yes in in asteroid city 
And, and as we were being introduced that way from opening credits to the establishing shot, I had the thought, this is the best that this has ever been. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to struggle to put my finger on what I mean by this. Uh huh. But whatever it is, it's in my mind, it starts with the stop motion in Life Aquatic. Yeah. And then it continues with the skiing scene in Grand Budapest Hotel. Yes. And then in Asteroid City, it finally reaches oh, this is perfectly what it should be in yeah. my mind. This is this is the perfect blend and balance of reality and unreality, heightened and grounded to the point where I understand th the whole world is as artificial as it is real. Mm -hmm. And... There's almost nothing that this movie could do to take me out of it because I'm suspended in between like what could be and what is. Yeah. When I, I mean, I had obviously seen the trailer, but when I was watching the opening too, I was really struck by the fact, and I, this was something that my brain kept like flipping on and I was right with my first impression. Um, but I was, like, so impressed with how he made it look like one of those postcards that you would get, mm. where it looks like mm -hmm. a watercolor. Mm -hmm. But then I was looking at it, and I was like, but the depth feels so yes. real. Exactly. And did you look up how he did the set for the behind-the-scenes stuff? There's a, a great video. Oh, there's a video. About... I just found some articles with photos. <laughs> no, you have to. Look, I, I, I've, I, in the past few days, I've watched just some of the most exciting, most riveting behind the scenes videos I've ever seen yeah. in my life. And th and uh, there will be links in the show notes and you have to see what I've seen. Yeah. Liz. It's so good. I'm so excited. So yeah, like what I, what I saw from like architectural digest was that like, they do have a backdrop, like, which is what mm -hmm. I was sort of expecting. Cause it looks, it looks flat, um, but it looks further away and it is far mm -hmm. away, but it's not, you know, endless far away. And then I was like, but how do they get the rocks to look so realistic, but also painted? And the mm -hmm. answer is that they are both, they are painted because they're pieces of foam, but they're yep. also huge. Yep. They're 28 to 60 feet tall. Right. Um, and I, I mean, like watching this, I was just like, at one point I just thought, oh, you know what it was? It was when they were eating lunch under that lattice mm. and the light was like checkerboarded onto them. I just thought. This is candy. Like, mm. like we know that Wes Anderson movies are, like, so visually rich that it's, like, it almost doesn't matter sometimes what the actual plot is and who the actors are because you can just look at them and feel good about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but that, like, that scene in particular, I was just like, God, like, it could have been so easy to make that look busy. And mm -hmm. instead it just looks, like, textured and, like, gorgeous and, like, you can feel that it's, like, warm for lunch but they're a little bit cooler under this lattice. Um, and then also in terms of like the anim, I'm just going to call them animatronics. That's not what all of it is, but we're just going to call it that. <laughs> Let's talk about that. There's, so there's the, it, I loved in terms of what you were saying in terms of it, like balancing, 
So you have like the Roadrunner, which shows up multiple times. We pause list. Yes. We we have to give this its due. It's amazing. Movie starts. There's a host. You understand that the host is more than just a narrator. And the host introduces you to the writer of the play, Asteroid City. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this is a play, and we're going to learn about the play itself in addition to seeing the play. Opening credits start. Train. Incredible miniature. A one-eighth scale. Yeah. There's like, there's a human being, like, sitting on the back of the train. Yes. Despite the fact that it's not a real train. Yes. And it looks incredible. Yes. But it also doesn't look real. Yes. Like it, it, it does not fool you into being like, I'm seeing a real train. You're, you're like, I know that this is something different. I know that this is trickery. But it, looks in, it just looks incredible. Yeah. And then on top of that, the, 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 I was about to say the cherry on top, but that's not, that's reductive. Yeah. Like the piece of this movie that encapsulates its, you know, its feeling, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, its whole vibe, its whole, this, this Roadrunner puppet. When it opens its mouth, it's like. <laughs> I like I cannot undersell this. The movie is one hundred times better <laughs> because of this one puppet that we're introduced to early and yeah. then like keeps reappearing and is there in the credits and the end credits as well. Yeah. Yeah, I when I saw that guy, I was like, "Oh hell yeah!" And that, but like, also in terms of like the animatronics, that it's not all animatronics, but that's what we're gonna call it. The scene where um, they trick the soldier into putting a dime into the phone, the payphone, mm. yeah. has a series of like wires that you follow, and that's in that like style, like that, mm-hmm. like something is happening here. This is like constructed style. Mm-hmm. And that too, I was like, God, what a perfect use of this. Like, it's not necessarily as flashy as like the Roadrunner, which is not, I don't, I'm not talking down about the Roadrunner at all. I just mean like, right. it's such a more muted use of it, but it's mm-hmm. so precise and perfect. But then besides the Roadrunner, which was my favorite, obviously also the alien in the spaceship is a delight. Everything, when he picks up, the the meteor the asteroid and he goes to take a picture and he goes and poses such a good joke a joke with no words <laughs> but it's so so funny it's so funny That's holding all- up the camera and then the alien poses with it <laughs> that all is wonderful i don't want to downplay that at all the fucking cocktail vending machine was my oh, favorite. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm so glad that you said something different than what I thought you might say because I have my own thing that I want to call out that's oh, yeah. in a similar category. But yeah, I'm so glad you had uh, that one. Yeah, that's it's a great like, shot. He loves, you know, it's it just feels so Wes Anderson. Like, he, there are all these vending machines and yep. they come up a lot, 
But basically, at some point, somebody has a drink. I think it's even Steve Carell has a drink. And they're mm-hmm. like, where the hell did you get, like, the adults are like, where the hell did you get a drink in this town? <laughs> He's yeah. like, and from the vending machine. And then later we get mm-hmm. to see it shake up a little, <laughs> a yes. little martini. We see and the then... process of the vending machine making a martini. Um, And then for the rest of the movie, people are just drinking these martinis. Yes. It's so funny. Yeah. If I were to expand my... I was going to call it a Triforce, but if I was going to expand it to a, a Mount Rushmore, that would be <laughs> the 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 Martini Machine would would be added. But the the Triforce in my mind is the Roadrunner we've already talked about, of course, the Alien which we touched on, but we could talk about more. Yeah. But the the unsung hero of this movie is the malfunctioning part that yeah. falls out of the car. <laughs> Which, which, yes, makes a second appearance. I could have, like, I could have pumped my fist and hooted and hollered when I saw it again. It is, it is so special because it is mechanical, but it moves sort of like it's organic. Yes. Which renders it, in my mind, like something that you might see in a David Cronenberg movie. Oh, oh, he's that one that does all those weird things. All the body horror, like The Fly, starring Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Uh, And most recently, Crimes of the Future, which I still haven't seen, but I'll probably see this October. Yeah. Yeah, when I saw that, like, writhing around and sparks flying out of it, I was like, (laughs) this is funny, but at the same time, menacing enough. Yes. I really thought it was going to explode. Yeah. Because it's like sparking, too. mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that, I just, I just love that so much because it's, it, it's really funny, but it, <laughs> it's almost a little bit scary. Yeah. Um, which anytime one of, look, this gets me to another point that I could spend more time on, but I think I'll spend less time than I could on mm-hmm. it. That. Some of my favorite parts of Wes Anderson's movies are the parts where you're reminded that this is most appropriate for grown-ups. Yeah. Because it would I think it would be very easy to paint it over with a broad brush of being so twee. Yeah. That it's family friendly. But then there are also these moments that are kind of sometimes overshadowed mm-hmm. that are a little darker or like a little sexier. Like, yeah. like, like, like we talked about in the last movie, like about like Francis McDormand sleeping with Timothy <laughs> Chalamet and how like inappropriate Timothy. that is. Right. But it's, it's sort of, I, in my mind, it's sort of a better movie because it's inappropriate. Yeah. That may sound like it's not really related to the sparking car part, but <laughs> it veered close enough to like horror imagery in my mind that I was like, this is really special that this is in one of Wes's movies. Yeah. I um, I think that might be, I think the only other thing I have really to say about the set is Something that I thought was a perfect confluence of form and the Wes Anderson-iness about it 
was the scenes, the multiple scenes we get between Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman in the windows. Yeah. That felt very much like play setting to me. Like, I can 100% see the set of a play where you have two windows and you have the characters sitting in the windows talking to each other. Right. Um, and obviously they don't film it the way they would have to film that if it were a play. Or they, the way they'd have to do that as a play. If they were doing that as a play, they'd either have to have the windows facing the audience and having them mm-hmm. lean over and talking to each other. Or they need to have the windows at sort of an impossible 45 degree angle so that they were right. facing each other but also facing the audience. Right. Um. But so like the but the and so the framing ends up being like deeply Wes Anderson because you get us a, a shot where 90 not 90 75 percent of the shot 80 percent of the shot nothing is happening it's all mm-hmm. happening in a tiny square um but there's still of course it's still beautiful like I know in one part you like there's just this gorgeous sunset happening um with Scarlett Johansson um talking and that I thought was just like, oh, this is like a perfect sort of confluence of all of these different things together. Something that I find a little bit interesting mm-hmm. about that part of the movie for me was that um, what what seems like it's probably an unintentional byproduct is that at least one of those scenes, which as you're characterizing it, seems like the perfect setting for... Wes Anderson's style to shine through in the composition of the frame. Yes. Right. And it just so happens that at one of those moments, I perceived this is when the movie feels the least controlled and the least um, detail perfect. Oh, that's interesting. Because there was so much cutting between the two angles, Mm -hmm. cut to Jason Schwartzman, cut to Scarlett Johansson, um, pretty often. And you can see enough of what is in the other one's shot in the reverse shot Mm. that it created some bad continuity. Oh, that's interesting. I obviously was having trouble keeping up, so I didn't notice that. Like... (laughs) Like one of the um, prominent uh, images in in those in in both of those reverse shots is um, Jason Schwartzman's character uh, is um, using his room as a dark room yeah. for his photography, and so when he pulls the blinds up, he flicks off a red light bulb, and mm-hmm. that red light bulb is sort of always hanging like just by his head. Mm-hmm. And in, in at least one of those scenes, it was to me distractingly obvious that when they cut to Jason Schwartzman, the light bulb was really still. And when they cut to Scarlett Johansson, you could see the light bulb and it was swinging. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, and uh, there was something else um, that was really, oh, it was when he was eating the sandwich. Oh, uh-huh. There's some... Uh, food always creates the most glaring opportunities for bad continuity. It's like, yeah. oh, that drink is full. That drink is empty. That drink is full. That's why a, in a, in a, The Ultimatum, a reality show that I watched with Sarah, so to speak, they have metal cups. Seriously. Mm, they have yeah. everybody drink out of... And, and in the first season, they were silver. And the second season, they were gold. I forget. Maybe it was opposite, but... 
I was like, why are they all, like, they'd be at a normal restaurant, like a real restaurant in the world. I'd right. be like, they have the cups here too. And it was because <laughs> of that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I noticed it when he was eating the sandwich. It's like one shot of him, there's a bite in that corner. Next shot, oh, there's no bite. Oh, the bite moved to the other mm-hmm. corner. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, which I bring up just because it's in the same context that you were talking yeah. about. Not because I want to nit- nitpick this movie and criticize it and say like, You're ah, really ah, coming ah. for Wes Anderson. I, yeah. You've been I caught, coming for him for years. I caught you making a mistake. <laughs> But just because it was a little distracting to me, and I think it's a little bit interesting, mm-hmm. um, not because I think it's a bad thing necessarily. Um, I also I want to bring up really quick because I don't have too much to say on this, but it's directly related. Um, the sound design in this movie. Mm, okay. Did you notice? I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of times where there's just sort of like a loud sound happening. Mm. Um, where it's either like a wind whooshing or like a like a sort of white noisy sound, like there's just sort of something mechanical in the background that's far enough away that it just sort of sounds like white noise. Uh huh. Um, and it there the, in one of the scenes, and I couldn't tell you which one. In one of the um window scenes, it actually cuts that like sound cuts, and then it's clear. Mm. Um, like the sound quality is like clearer. But I just mm-hmm. think it's worth pointing out because, especially when you rewatch it, because he's doing a lot for how much white noise there is and, like, how much outdoorsy sort of noise there is for them being on the set. I feel like he's always trying to make you remember that, like, they were doing, like, nuclear bomb testing. Right. And there's, like, you know, they're in the desert and it's, like, very isolated. And so, like, any sounds you're hearing are, like, really... um like these sort of like loud but ambient sounds. Um yeah. and I think I've told you my favorite thing and I don't know what movie this is. <laughs> it might it might be a Kubrick film, but maybe I'm wrong. There is a movie, a horror movie. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. Where when you start watching the movie, there is a low hum that's playing. Mm. It's almost mm. imperceptible. Because there's other stuff going on, there's music playing, whatever. But this hum is there the whole time. And they finally get to a scene later in the movie where somebody is walking and trying to be very quiet so that a bad thing doesn't happen. And that's when they cut out the humming noise. So now you've gotten the watcher to become accustomed to this background noise. And so when they do finally cut it out and you have somebody walking without it, it suddenly sounds so much quieter and also the stakes are so much higher and i feel like wes anderson was doing a little bit of that in this movie Mm. where like why is there this sort of like clank not it's not even clanking it's just sort of like whooshing and like white noise and like machine sounds and i feel like you know especially like that in relation to the atom bomb i think there are atom bombs happening um there's just the sense of sort of like um like danger but also like um nothing is like pure or as clean as you'd maybe want it to be there's always something it's like almost like the grit of the desert like there's always something a little bit sandy about it Mm -hmm. um and i thought that that was really interesting uh because i feel like he's so specific about i i mean he's so specific about everything but like he really wants to compose he wants everything composed in a very specific way to so to have this sort of chaotic noise felt like not off for him but just different 
Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad you talked about that because I wouldn't have talked about it. Something that I might have been subconsciously aware of, but not really actively thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I am curious about the other movie with the hum, which I don't think we're any closer to knowing what it is because you called it a horror movie. And if it is a horror movie, Stanley Kubrick, well, it's I scary. Would, mm, yeah, still horror or just scary. I think Stanley Kubrick kind of only made one of those. And I don't think it's The Shining because <laughs> I Googled The Shining hum and <laughs> nothing like what you're describing came up. Oh, so. yeah. I would love to remember when I when I will say when I first heard this, the person said the name of the director and the movie. And I just did not commit that to memory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Blank check did Stanley Kubrick fairly recently and that did not come up in any of their conversations, at least from what I remember. It's probably not Stanley Kubrick. I just do think it's somebody from that past. From the 20th century? Like it's not, it's not like a movie that came out in the past 25 years Uh or 30 years. Okay. Before we move on to something else, I wanted to expand a little bit on what we were saying about the the setting and and, oh, yeah. and the landscape and the miniatures and 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 the set and and just to just to say I think I've already made my point but I haven't said it in this particular way that when we were being introduced to Asteroid City and then starting to see it populated with characters I was um, so swept up in the artificiality of what I was seeing mm-hmm. that I was imp- I was impressed and and sort of amazed that I didn't like I I didn't understand how it was possible and I <laughs> I, I I was sort of because what I was seeing was. We appear to be really genuinely outdoors. Mm-hmm. Yes. At the same time as we appear to be on a set. Yes. That, that must be that that my brain is thinking, well, this must be on a soundstage, which would be indoors. But it really looks like it, it is actually outside. And, and the answer is that it is it is what it looks like. It is it is a fake place. That was really built outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see it come together in some of the videos that I've seen is is stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he and you can hear Wes Anderson talk a little bit about filming in Spain, which I remember one of the first things I knew about this movie was, well, Wes Anderson will shoot his next movie in Spain. Mm-hmm. And having come off of the French Dispatch, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Okay. India movie, France movie, Spain movie. Mm-hmm. And then finding out that it's set in the American Southwest. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that. Thought mm-hmm. that the story would be as European as the filming location. Mm-hmm. But it's not. And then to hear Wes talk about it a little bit, he's like, well, setting this story in the desert, looking for a location with a long stretch of flat land 
And then he says it like it's a given that it's going to be filmed in somewhere in Europe. Yeah. So he's like, well, Europe, Flatland, you're going to end up in Spain. So it's like, oh, okay. Uh, he, 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 he has his reasons for wanting to do everything in Europe that I have not heard him elaborate on. Yeah. Um, but uh, there's lots of Wes Anderson interviews that I haven't heard or read. So maybe it's out there somewhere. And maybe it's just his, you know, he's so sophisticated that he never wants to set foot in America anymore. Or maybe it's got something to do with, you know, the financials of movie making. Yeah. Maybe it's all of the above. Who knows? Who cares? Um, Honestly, I bet it has something to do with um, rules and regulations slash cost. Yep. Which are oftentimes intertwined. I think that that probably is a, a significant part of it. And he also talks about it in terms of it's a brief video with brief snippets of Wes talking, mm-hmm. but he from what he says it it he makes it sound like they did location scouting, mm-hmm. and the more they did location scouting, the more he, in totally inevitable, predictable Wes style, wanted. Just the best bits of each location Mm -hmm. and wanting all of that, making it impossible to, to pick one was like, okay, well, we'll actually create the location instead of going to one that's already existing. And that meant not only constructing the few buildings that are in Mm -hmm. asteroid city and the very funny half-built freeway on-ramp that Mm -hmm. goes to nowhere and the crater with the observatory but also the rocks in in the distance um and the train and the train tracks and all that and it and it looks incredible and it's this is this is my way of transitioning to sort of a different topic Mm -hmm. it is what it is for a clearly defined good reason Mm -hmm. which is from minute one, you are being told this is a play. Yes. And this, so one way of talking about this movie that I could, thought could be kind of a, a thesis, I, I have a few sort of mini theses, mm-hmm. but one of them is I, I wanted to sort of contextualize this in a broader conversation, which I've brought up on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. Which is, I've heard multiple people, some I know, some just on the internet, who seem to pick favorites out of Wes Anderson's filmography based on the movie having a clear reason for being his way. Mm-hmm. And the clearer that reason is, the less of an audience buy-in there is Mm -hmm. to I just have to accept that the world of this movie and all these characters are this way Uh that is so out of the ordinary but something like this well actually let me do let me do the other example the earlier examples first I brought this up when we talked about Royal Tenenbaums Mm -hmm. heard someone say once don't remember where or when or who that, that Royal Tannenbaums gave Wes Anderson his best 
sandbox to play in because basically all of the characters have written a book of some kind. Yes. And when we're introduced (laughs) to a character, we're introduced to the book that they wrote. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. All these people are so intellectual, so literary that it's appropriate that they should be speaking this way (laughs) and behaving this way. And the, and the, and the movie would, would be like this. And that's one of the strengths of that movie. And I've also heard, Grand Budapest Hotel talked about this way. Mm-hmm. And I think it's specifically, I think I can attribute this. I think it's specifically David Sims from the Atlantic and Blank Check, who I've heard talk about it in these terms that um, David Sims, big uh, cheerleader for Asteroid City, um, and gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Sorry, I haven't read his review for the Atlantic, mm-hmm. but. Um, I shared his letterbox review with you when I saw it. Five stars. He wrote, Wes heard you all talking about him. Yes. <laughs> and also David Sims uh, posted a list on letterbox where he has ranked all of Wes Anderson's films. Mm-hmm. And his list is Grand Budapest Hotel number one, Asteroid City number two. See, this is why I think that I really, I think I do need to like dig into this the way that I've done. And that's just one, and that's just one critic's opinion. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm saying it because he's the host of one of my favorite podcasts. And I think he has um, a clout. I think he has good. Yeah, but uh, I, I try not to put too much stock in that because. Sure. I just mean when I, when like. He's not some gumbo off the street. When I go down, I've talked about this. Yeah. Critics have critic brain. Yes. They, 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 I can't expect them to have any of the same opinions that I do. Yes. Because they don't watch the movies the same way that I do. Yes, that's true. And when I, and if I care, if I let myself care about this sort of thing, then when I look farther down his list Mm -hmm. and see how low fantastic Mr. Fox is, I start to get my feelings hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and that's stupid. Yeah. And I have What's his to number t- three, if you don't want me asking? I think it's Tenenbaums. Okay, that makes sense. But I mean, part, gonna... part of the problem with the Wes Anderson movies, though, with ranking them, is that they're all going to be beloved to somebody. It's t- Here, I'll give you... Uh, look, I'll give you the top half, and okay. then if you want to hear the bottom half, I'll give them to you. And I'm stopping at six because I think you'll you may be pleased to hear. So it goes Budapest Hotel, Asteroid City, Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, Moonrise Kingdom, Life Aquatic is number six. That's right. He's my man. Where's Isle of Dogs? That's all I want to know. At the bottom. Good. He's right. right. Yeah, I agree with him. Okay, but <laughs> you won't fully agree with him because right after Life Aquatic, now I have to give you the whole thing. Okay. Bottle Rocket is seven. That's fine. Yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox is eight. Okay, that's a problem. <laughs> French Dispatch is nine. Darjeeling Limited is ten. Isle of Dogs is eleven. Uh-huh. But I will say, like, here's a little bit of a caveat. Like, Darjeeling Limited, he gave that three and a half stars. Yeah. And that's second from the bottom. Okay, we're we're talking more than I intended to about <laughs> this all the David Sims's opinions yes, but I understand. about all I, of these movies. I understand the, what you're saying, which is that like the, the point I was going to make is that that he puts Budapest Hotel number one mm-hmm. 
which longtime listeners of this show will know that that's a movie that I am slightly cooler on. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot, but it's not ranked that highly for me. It's all relative. But to to try and paraphrase and hopefully try and do justice to what I've heard him say about that movie mm-hmm. is it's the it's the perfect con you know narrative for his style because is is it is it is a story about mm-hmm. the last you know this this uh uh level of p- precision and sophistication yeah and trying to create an experience that is curated in this way mm-hmm. for guests which is like audience members and that phenomenon and that way of life being on its last legs and trying to to cling to that and hold that up yeah in the face of fascism and and the decline of that way of of uh arranging the world mm-hmm. and creating a an environment that is specific and perfect um and and Ray finds and and we we've talked before about like Wes Anderson's surrogates mm-hmm. and how French Dispatch is is a different movie when you look at it at the at, through the lens of like Bill Murray his character's dead he was the editor of this magazine that's kind of like being the director of a film mm-hmm. um and Ray Fiennes is sort of a okay Ray Fiennes manages this hotel that's sort of like being the director of a movie mm-hmm. Asteroid City has a director of a play, yeah, <laughs> which is a lot like being a director of a movie. Yeah, even more so than being the head manager at a hotel. And and his he has multiple scenes, but sort of the main one is about how he chooses to literally live inside of the production that he's mounting. Yes, <laughs> and never leave. And he gets a visit from his wife, who is soon to be his ex-wife. Yeah, who cheated on him with a baseball player. Sorry, that was sort of a tangent. The, yeah. what, the, the point that I was ultimately trying to lead up to is to apply this logic of looking at the movies, giving you clear reasons why they are the way they are. Yeah. Asteroid City does this on multiple levels, mm-hmm. and Dana helped point this out to me. And the obvious one is it tells you this is a play, mm-hmm. and so there's a reason for all the artificiality in the visuals. But also, one of a few things that the play is about is this gathering of geniuses. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so Woodrow, <laughs> a.k.a. Brainiac, and all of his peers are young and supposed to be so smart mm-hmm. that there's a clear good reason why they should sound like Wes Anderson characters. Yes. Because they're so intelligent. Yeah. That you would believe that they are oddballs. Yeah. And they sort of meet each other for the first time and they thrive and they talk about one of them says, like, I could never do this with my classmates. Yeah. 
um, and you and and they sort of thrive and feed on one on on one another, and yeah. they're they're sort of being their most authentic selves in a way that you you don't see them in any other context, but you can tell in any other context they would be probably silenced or mocked or ridiculed or shut down in some way that that they wouldn't be themselves as much as they are being and it's it's not just that they're like precocious either Mm -hmm. like their their science is so advanced that the literal military is there to snatch it up right yeah part part, a, a small part of the the movie among many is that they they are not only great students but they're inventors yeah and the things that they've invented are so advanced that they're dangerous and yes. one of them is in fact a death ray and is yeah. called in those terms a death ray yeah <laughs> yeah Wes Anderson was like how can I fit a death ray in mm-hmm. one of my movies mm-hmm no, he fits a lot in there. A death ray and, of course, an alien and a spaceship. Um, Some of the acting things that really stood out to me that I was really happy about. Um, I think it's... Ugh, what order do I want to do this in? Okay, I'll go from, like, least important to most important. Um, I loved... I know I already said I loved those triplets. I did love them. Mm-hmm. I think that their ability to, like, talk over each other with yes. such precision is insane. And I say this mm-hmm. as somebody who has a six-and-a-half-year-old. Right. Um... But also, I really liked how often they just yelled. They were just yelling at Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really deeply funny. Like, Tom yep. Hanks is just kind of like, huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, there's that. I want to talk about Jason Schwartzman. But before that, can you guess the part that made me cry? Is it? I mean, I I, I can think of a number of candidates. I think I, I, I personally didn't get there watching this movie. But Dana did, and um, I could easily see multiple scenes. Was it the um, – there's sort of multiple burial scenes, but was it the last no. one? Okay. Was it the scene where he's breaking the news to them? No. I'll, g- I'll give you a hint. It's in the same time space in terms of how far along we are in the movie as the scene that made me cry in The French Dispatch. And the scene that made me cry in the French Dispatch is the scene where Jeffrey Wright is talking to that chef who has poisoned himself. Right. Mm-hmm. And says yes. that he's never tasted, he's like crying because he's like, I've never tasted anything like this before. And it's just so tragic that like the the thing that he experienced, he will never be able to experience again. Yeah. But in if you'll remember, that's pretty late in the movie. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember uh, that the answer to this question for the French dispatch, I, I knew it would have something to do with Jeffrey Wright, even yeah. if I didn't remember that specific scene. Is it the Margot Robbie scene? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So first off, when they showed the photo of the mom, I was like, is that Margot Robbie? <laughs> yes. And I recognized her immediately. And, and, and I'll just to say very quickly that um, Dana said that the movie made her cry. And I did ask her when, and she did, have a similar though not exactly the same answer as you and i think that she sort of singled out what happens just before that mm-hmm. when jason schwartzman is talking not to margot robbie but to adrian brody yes i think that that definitely led to me because then when he does he and talks, that is 
look that that those two scenes which are bumping up against one another and and part of the same sequence if i can call it yes use a different word from scene that's the emotional climax of the movie and if anything is supposed to make you cry that's that's the way it's designed i think part of the reason i was not surprised necessarily but like i just kept thinking god this is when this is happening is because yeah so jason schwartzman's like i just don't get why my character's acting this way and walks off scene from the play that is actively happening, which so right. like we've had a couple of times that the wall has broken before. Um, Brian Cranston is on scene at some point when he shouldn't be in full color. Yeah. Can we, can we very briefly talk about that yeah, before you keep talking? I just wanted to single that out as the one single solitary moment that I had the thought. I don't know if I like this. That's fair. I feel and like... I th- and I think, it's, I think it serves the exact purpose that you are framing it as. Mm-hmm. I think it has a r- specific reason for being in the movie. And the reason is it prepares us for... That's what I was going to say, yeah. But I think it was... I think it was done inelegantly on purpose. And yes. I would rather they had done something else. Yeah, I I think that because also the second time that I feel like they sort of break the wall is also with is with Jason Schwartzman, not also with Jason Schwartzman because that first scene is with Scarlett Johansson. Um where he puts his hand on the little quickie griddle. Yeah. And I didn't realize until like last night or this morning, like when I was in bed, I was like when Scarlett Johansson says, "You really burned your hand. This really happened." I was like in, at the time, I just thought she was react like because that reaction is almost a little too subtle. Because like, mm-hmm. I would also say that if somebody put their hand on a fucking griddle, right? Um, see, see, your initial reaction was my only reaction. Ah, uh, and then the conclusion that you came to was Dana's initial reaction, which she shared with me as you're sharing it with me. Yes. Now. <laughs> I watched that scene where he burns his hand and her reaction is, show it to me. Oh my God, that's something that really happened. Yeah. And I thought she's saying that because that's a funny way of saying, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened, which is what a person would say. Yes. She's just saying it in a more heightened way to make it funnier because it's a script written by Wes Anderson. But Dana saw it and saw what you eventually saw, which is, oh, it's written that way and performed that way because that is the actor, not the character, responding to that's not part of the play. Yeah. You really did it. Now, or it is we, part of the play, we, but he doesn't know really actually burn written, his hand. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It is part of the play that the character burns his hand. But what we see is not only the character burning his hand, but the actor actually burning his hand. And then the other actor responding to it in kind, because it actually did happen to the performer, not just to the character. You know what I'm wondering, now that we're talking about this? Yeah. There must have been a version of this where we see his hand. I had the same thought because we see what the grill mark looks like on the bread and it looks like lightning bolts. And, and that's we see very, the grill itself. And we see the grill itself and it looks very cute. And I thought, oh, okay, 
Now, once he burns his hand, we will see the lightning bolt burned into his hand. Yeah. And we never do. And I think that's an interesting choice. And I do wonder, and I don't have a guess or an assumption about this the way that you seem to do. I wonder if it was a known choice. We will never see it. Or if they did shoot it where we see it. And then in editing, it was like, actually, it's more interesting if we never see it. I think that it was an editing. I feel like there's mm-hmm. no way. it It's too, it leads up too much that Wes Anderson wouldn't have shot that. Even, even if, if, let's say he didn't, let's say even if he didn't, sh- let's say it didn't get shot at least. I feel like that must have been the intention. It's too specific. No grill looks like that. Nothing looks like that fucking grill. I can think of two possibilities that seem only one seems only more slightly more likely to me. And the slightly less likely one is this was all done intentionally because of what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Like it is a setup and the punchline is we don't see it. Yeah. And that's funny because it seems so obvious to us what they're setting up and that we should see it. Yeah. And the other possibility in my mind is that maybe it is set up that way because we were supposed to see it, but maybe the reason we don't is because they just couldn't get it to look right. That's also true. Or like not get it to look right without it looking like super fucked up. Like, like he had an image in his head and we saw the preparation for us seeing that image in his head and they could never get the image in his head to look right yeah. on screen or on camera. And so they did everything but showing us that. Yeah, that makes sense too. Are there any other times besides the last time that they break the wall, the fourth one? I think when Jeffrey Wright is at the podium the first time we see it happen for the big gathering, uh-huh. I think he looks into the camera. Okay. And I think that that is a subtle, intentional fourth wall break. Okay. So besides those and any that we missed, hypothetically, Jason Schwartzman goes out. He has the conversation with Adrian Brody, where Adrian Brody basically just says, you just have to keep doing it. Like, you're and act- by the And oh, by ahead. the way, I think it worth, it's worth pointing out, as he's on his way to speak to Adrian Brody, we see Jeff Goldblum. Yes. He yes, passes that is by when... Jeff Goldblum, who is partially in the alien costume. Oh, th- and this is the joke. Th- this is where I think it's a joke, is they say, and Jeff Goldblum as the alien. We see the alien one time. He does not have a single word of dialogue. It's a claymation animatronic puppet thing. It is, an, it is a stop motion creation that is so incredible that even though the proportions are all wrong, mm-hmm. I genuinely had the thought, did they put a person in a costume? <laughs> yes. And it's too skinny for that to be possible. Possible, yeah. But I think it's ingenious. Yes. I think what I think the calculation that they did was that this is a stop motion creation, but it is not a representation of an alien. Uh-huh. It is a representation of a person in a costume playing an alien. Yes. And so its skin or flesh rumples and folds in such a way when it articulates that it looks just like a costume bunching up on a person. It's incredible. 
and 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 the the only sound that the alien makes is it does clear its throat yes. before it leaves. Yes. And at that point, we have not seen Jeff Goldblum, and I had the thought, funny joke. That's Jeff Goldblum clearing his throat, and that's <laughs> Jeff Goldblum as the alien. And so that was my my thought is, and then he because he comes back, he still does not have any dialogue. I mean, the, the alien the throat is a sound, back, but yes. there's no dialogue. I think when he comes back, we only see his hands, if I remember um, correctly. I think we see his head. Maybe. I think his whole, like, sort of head and arms stick out. But maybe I'm misremembering that. But still, another opportunity for him to say a word. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, how on earth are they attributing? Because I didn't even notice the clear the throat clearing um, when I first watched. I was like, how on earth are they attributing this to Jeff Goldblum? And then he walks off stage and we see Jeff Goldblum in the human-sized costume <laughs> and he says like one line and it's but with so nothing funny. over his head so yeah we see so we can face. see his yeah. face and and i i had before seeing that scene i had the thought well it's just the throat clear but i also had the thought before i came to the conclusion that this is purely a stop motion creation and it's it looks incredible mm-hmm. um and it is so specifically what it's supposed to be i had the thought did they do some kind of compositing like mm-hmm. did they actually one did they actually put jeff goldblum in a costume and do some compositing with puppetry and then i also had the thought did they do motion capture of jeff goldblum and then yes that was create, my thought too and then create a digital asset that looks just like a stop motion creation yes and they could have done any of that. And I don't know because I haven't seen an answer to that in any of the behind the scenes videos. But the conclusion that I've come to is the one you already heard me say. Mm-hmm. That it is all stop motion, but it does look like all these other things by design. Yes. Yeah. And I then agree. maybe probably that is Jeff Goldblum clearing his throat. But then really the reason for the credit is the cameo we see later. Yeah. So he goes, so Jason Schwartzman reaches Adrian Brody, has dialogue with him, and then Uh goes outside to smoke a cigarette and then has dialogue with Margot Robbie. And Margot Robbie's on, also smoking a cigarette on sort of a fire escape balcony. She's in like, um, like an 18th century French looking costume. And she was in a scene in, we learn, in um, Asteroid City. That got cut. And it was a scene where he meets his wife in a dream. And she says to him, do you remember it? And he says, basically, no. And she then reenacts the entire scene where she says. And then you say, and then I say, and then you say. And it's so. so it's it's her monologue, but she's doing dialogue. dialogue as a monologue. And um, I don't know why. I mean, obviously, that's the emotional peak right but i don't know why it was like the whole time i was just like god i didn't even realize margot robbie was in this movie she's not even really in this movie like she is but she's like in this one scene she only interacts with two people one of which is jason schwartzman and one of which is um the guy who plays the mechanic who matt dillon who goes out to smoke a cigarette too um and goes hey i was gonna have a, a scene with your character if you'd been in my play um, um, but yeah, it's just so moving. I mean, I think part, I think part of it is like the sort of question I feel like of the movie 
is like about this sort of existential dread about both being stuck in a place and then having to move on from a place at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like they both are in this place for this reason. Um, they're all a little bit in their own routines. Um, we have somebody who's grieving. Um, but then to move on is almost just as hard as it is to stay. And there's a huge amount of, of dread in that. Mm-hmm. And so then the monologue that Margot Robbie has is about Jason Schwartzman's character in the play meeting his dead wife in a dream and on the alien's planet, I think. Yeah. And Or a moon of the planet. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and her basically Mag- Magnavox, saying... Magnavox 27, I want to say. Oh, yeah, that sounds right. And her basically saying, like, not you have to move on, but, like, there can be joy in moving on. Mm-hmm. Like, not, oh, you just need to, like, you know, it's time, move on, which I feel like is sort of a trope. But, like, you'll get something out of it if you do. And you should mm-hmm. know that already. Um, Yeah, it really got me. I, like, I'm so excited to see that again. Yeah, it's extremely effective. And um, there are... Uh, many reasons why, and I want to call two of them. And one is because Margot Robbie is fantastic. Yes, she's amazing. She knocks it out of the park. And then the other is the the way that it's shot so that she has so much monologue in this semi-wide profile. Mm-hmm. And then before it's over, yes. cuts to a close-up of her. And that, ooh, like just that cut alone. I know. From semi-wide profile to facing the camera close up uh is um it's just ev- everything that it sets out to be it's it packs such a punch i just had a thought which is a bigger thought maybe too big for how late we are into this podcast but um so this is this is in many ways a quarantine movie wes anderson gave us a quarantine movie this is another thing that i wanted to bring up so i'm so glad you're bringing it up too i I had previously talked about how I love the everything about, except apparently the continuity errors, the (laughs) Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman scenes in the windows. I feel like there's just a lot going on there and and blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. I just realized that that is mirrored in that fucking Margot Robbie scene. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, it's reverse in the sense that Jason Schwartzman's on the left now. Wasn't he already on the left? No, I thought... Scarlett Johansson's cabin was on the left and he was on the right. I picture Jason Schwartzman being on the left, but that might just be an assumption that I made. Man, I wonder, I'm sure there's a way we can figure this out. Probably just rewatching the movie. But anyway, so, but it's the same structure. But what are they? They're always separated. Mm hmm. Right. There's always a gap between them. And so they're like constant. And it's funny, too, because we know that Scarlett Johansson's character and. Um, Jason Schwartzman's character sleep together because Dinah, uh, Midge's daughter, sees them through the window. <laughs> right, and we we they they we see them talk about it afterwards. Yes, because it happened during a time jump from Act Two to Act Three, mm-hmm. and there's a bit of a flashback, but it's very minor. Yeah, it yeah, it's like the only real fl- it is it is the the only real flashback, and it's a good use of it. Um, mm-hmm. You see, like Jason Schwartzman with like his pipe from like his like hip 
level with his pipe. And yep. then you just see Scarlett Johansson's little toes wiggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, Dinah through the window being like, <gasps> um, and I think it's even like, I think, suppo- pr- 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 I think that they imply that they've slept together multiple times. Sure. Because it's been a week and it could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because she keeps saying like, this is not, she says like, this is not the start of something, which I feel like is a different vibe than like, that was just a one-time thing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, in terms of it being like, I think, I think that, yeah, it's like a, it's in part a quarantine movie and having that one scene mirror these other sort of meaningful scenes with the same character, but when he's playing the actor version of himself, not the character version of himself, and then having this, like, space, this impossible space separating them. Um, Good work, Wes Anderson. You have evoked emotion. Uh, And and I second that, and I want to piggyback off of some things that you said. We should start wrapping up, but I have some sort of big things that I'm going to try to condense into a few minutes. First of which is uh, you brought up quarantine and that's another thing I wanted to say about the movie was carrying over from what we knew from the trailer to what we know now having seen the movie. Um, when I went through that earlier, I didn't say that they use the word quarantine in the trailer and it's clear that, okay, something happens to them where they are forcibly quarantined. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that in the trailer, I went, oh boy, this is a COVID story. This is a story that was written because of what happened to us uh, due to COVID. Mm -hmm. And watching, I wanted to say that watching the movie confirmed that for me. Mm -hmm. And also, it's just one thing that's going on. It's not. Yes, I don't think it's the. It's not the primary way that I would characterize the movie. I wouldn't primarily characterize it as a COVID story, but that's, that's in the in the gumbo yes as as it were and it's significant but not primary yes another thing is um this i think is the last of the theses that i wanted to get out there i i'm i'm sure we've talked about it plenty but at the same time i think we haven't talked about it enough okay go ahead and 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 it's camera moves Yes. And and the reason the reason why I want to give this its due for a moment is because everyone has a perception of what Wes Anderson's style is. Mm-hmm. And it's been I'm I can think of a few words I could use here but I'm going to land on commodified. Yes. So everyone recognizes it in images on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of like, for example, what's it called? Accidental Wes Anderson. I have that book. Mm -hmm. I got it for Christmas from my co-editor, Tim. And it's a book, but I'm, I'm assuming at first it was like an Instagram. Instagram account. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the problem here? The problem is that Wes Anderson's style has been reduced to what you can display yes. in still images. Yes, the aesthetic. Look, look at this still image 
where everything is symmetrical and at right angles and perfectly placed and curated. And whether that's been done by a person or somebody found something like that in the environment, accidental, unintentional, blah, blah, blah. It's a still image, well framed. Mm -hmm. Emphasis on the word still. Yes. What, what, what is being forgotten or underappreciated or under-recognized in this reduction of what he does is part of the way that the framing and the composition of shots is accomplished to perfection yeah. is sometimes the camera moves. Yes. Sometimes the camera moves so that initially it has, you know, some images in the frame and then it moves to reveal another image was just outside of the frame and now it is included. And it's not only Asteroid City, but like all of his movies. Yes. Where these pans and zooms and long tracking shots mm -hmm. are so pivotal to the experience. Also, and there's and there's a bunch and a bunch and a bunch of them. But the one that I really want to single out mm -hmm. is really early in the movie, the phone call between Jason Schwartzman and Tom Hanks. Yes, where like every phone call you've ever seen in a movie, it's divided down the middle, mm -hmm. one on the left, one on the right. But it gets very playful with that in a number of ways. But the best of which to me was when the um, police chase goes through yes. Asteroid City. And the camera follows it so that there's this like full 360 degrees from Jason Schwartzman to he hears something. Let's pan over to see it until it comes back around to Jason Schwartzman on the phone, which is such a... Which which would be a fun thing to do in any context, but but so much more fun and playful because it's only half of what's taking up the screen. Yeah. And it's mid-phone call. And it sort of breaks the convention of what this structure that we recognize is supposed to do and supposed to look like. Have you seen on... Not to mention the fact that also by the end of the phone call, it cuts... So that they are more in close-up and in profile and facing one another for yes. the end of the conversation, yes. which is so, so, so good. All right. Sorry. What were you going to say? Um, I also loved all of that. Have you seen, and I don't expect you to because I've mostly seen this on TikTok and then, of course, it bleeds into Instagram, the, like, um, little thing people were making where they'd say, like, you're, it would have text and it would say, like, you're not going to turn blank so that it looks like a Wes Anderson movie. And then it would be like a, like a self-made little video of like, I saw one where somebody's wife was giving birth. I saw the best one I saw was for a museum. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Not really. So basically it'll be like, it'll have this like sort of Wes Anderson-y music playing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's actually from a Wes Anderson soundtrack or not. It feels very mm -hmm. Mark Mothersbaugh. And, um, 
it'll show a variety of shots and people will be like sitting very proper and then it'll have like a cat and there's like a window, you know, it's like the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And something that I took away from those was that, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to ever say that I thought that maybe Wes Anderson's style was easy because I don't think it was easy. Mm-hmm. Um, He's obviously a filmmaker and I do not have the same skill set that he does. But I feel like people sort of recently have been like, oh, this is really easy to make fun of. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's so easy to just be like this Wes Anderson shit or whatever. Right. And in watching the dozens of these that I saw, or at least saw the beginnings of before I got bored, my main takeaway was um, you can't just recreate this aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Even, and, and obviously my standards are way low because these are little parodies, right? Right. So my standards have come way down. And mm-hmm. I was like, this doesn't actually feel like Wes Anderson at all. Right. It doesn't even feel like an approximation. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and, and especially in terms of like, they were all, they weren't still shots, mm-hmm. but um, they were all sort of like still cameras. Mm-hmm. And I missed the movement one. Um, but yeah, just none of them landed. There was one that landed from a museum and I was like, okay, you guys actually knocked this out of the park. Um, this is what, like, if all of them were like this one, this would, this like little trend would make sense to me, but Mm -hmm. instead they all just kind of suck. Um, my favorite shot slash shots is at the beginning when they do the, I don't think it's a full 360, but it's almost like a three quarters circle of the set at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And the reason I liked that so much is because that felt very play to me. Yes. Um, it felt, I mean, this is like a musical thing, but like when you are going to see a musical and the pit plays a little medley of the songs before the musical starts, Mm -hmm. but then I'm sure you noticed this. Yes. The overture. I'm sure you noticed this, but when we left, we did the same shot in reverse. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And not to mention, in addition to act one, scene, whatever, and all those, there's also a card that says intermission. Yes. It says something like optional, but it says it in more words than that. Yeah. And then there was another card later that said, I wrote this down so that I would. Uh, yes. There's another time, I think, between Acts 2 and 3 where they say no intermission. And then it says in parentheses, to be played relentlessly without a break. That's a, that's how it, that's the card for Act 3. Because okay, Act yes. 1 and Act 2 that's have multiple cards where it calls out which scenes you're seeing. But at the Act 3 card is like, instead of numbering the scenes, it's it says you're going to see the whole thing unbroken. Yes. Um, okay, wrapping up. Uh, here's two little things that I don't have anything interesting to say about. I just want to call them out because I love them so much. Yes, I have and two the, little things too. And the first is the flirty connection between Maya Hawk and Rupert Friend. I wanted to see them kiss so badly, uh-huh. those two characters. Um, and then related to that, because it is part of it, the funniest, most joyful scene in the movie is the Dear Alien song. Yes, it's scene. so funny. It's so funny. The way that the kid enters when he starts singing. <laughs> I actually, I went, ah! <laughs> the uh, uh, the the lyrics are put on screen as yes. subtitles. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> couldn't 
<laughs> done to absolute perfection. Thank you for bringing that up because we, yeah, we, I mean, it's just one the one scene, but I was so glad to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just sent you a text message, which yes. is something I noticed about the gas sign. I saw this, yeah. Uh, I saw your text. Can you describe what I sent you? You have juxtaposed the sign that says gas in the movie with the NPR logo. It's almost exactly the same. The font is obviously very different because the NPR font is a sans serif font and there's no way you could fly a sans serif font in Wes Anderson. Um, but it goes red, blue, black, which I know in the screenshot, it doesn't look particularly black for the gas, but I, it was Mm -hmm. black. I remember. And the NPR logo is red, black, blue, but I just feel like this has to be a nod to NPR, which feels Mm -hmm. like insane, but like what, I mean, pick, I feel like he would have picked other colors. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a good observation. What was this? Oh, here, I'll do my little second thing and I'll let you in. The other tiny little moment is that we get, I feel like we get these moments more in other Wes Anderson movies um, than we got into this in this one. But at the end, when they do finally decide that they're just going to bury their mom in the road, yeah. Steve Carell is way in the background off to the side. And when he realizes that they're like actually burying her, he takes off his visor. <laughs> I did not notice that. That's very funny. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. It's I'm like, glad a, he... isn't that such a Wes Anderson move? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. So yeah, those are my last two little things. Yeah, I guess um, probably the point that I'm going to leave with is um, I was going to make some comments about the shape of the story, Mm -hmm. the play's story, not the movie with its framing device that disrupts the shape. But the I'm I'm using this as an outro because the way that I'm going to say it is. This is the lens through which I'm looking forward to my second viewing of the movie. Yeah. Because I feel like it kind of sort of defied my expectations for what the shape was going to be. Part of the prologue is the host or maybe the writer. I can't remember who says it, Brian Cranston or Edward Norton, outright tells you not only is this going to be a play in three acts, but act one is one day, act two is the mm-hmm. next day, and act three is one week later. So the shape like couldn't be more clearly laid out. And at the same time, once we got to act three, and I think the thing that kind of disrupts it is the arrival of a bunch more people who are just outside of the quarantine because Mm -hmm. they know the news about the alien because it gets out at the end of act two. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I was a little bit, disoriented on my first viewing not seeing what i was expecting to see from a story about well now we're going to see what it is like for them a week into this quarantine yeah and now that i know what happens and how it actually goes i'm looking forward to that second viewing where I can just appreciate it for what it is with fewer expectations for what I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that also goes to this, the, in terms of the shape and in terms of like that time jump also speaks to that, which I'm going to bring this up. I'm glad I remember to bring this up. Um, That scene where they say, I wrote it down to get the wording right, but I'm sure you'll remember um, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. 
That's exactly how it goes. Yeah, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Oh, great. Did, did you stay to the end of the credits, by the way? Yeah. Okay, so you heard the song. Yeah. Okay, just making sure. Very um, good. But yeah, so when he was saying, you can't wake up, when everybody's saying, it's almost like a horror movie, speaking of horror movies. It's like these like zoom-in shots in the black and white with a spotlight on the actors who are playing the people in the play saying, you can't wake up. If you don't fall asleep. And it toggles between color and black and white. Yes. Yes. You're right. Um, and I felt like that, yeah, that was like really, I mean, that's obviously like they're trying to make that the thesis of the play, but like, what does that, and the movie, but like, what does that mean? And I feel like it goes back to that sort of sense of existential dread, which is that like, you are going to have to move on. You're going to have to move out of this place. Right. But you can't do that unless you rest first. Yeah, that to me felt like the encapsulation of reading this movie as uh, an expression of the experience of being quarantined yeah. due to COVID. Um, it felt to me like a mantra that is open-ended enough that it could mean a lot of things to different people. Yeah. But to me, it primarily means, oh, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. That is, and and not only saying that, but repeating it over and over mm-hmm. again is an expression of the way that it felt to leave the house very little and have your routine disrupted in this way where you had to develop a new routine that didn't really feel like a routine at all. Mm-hmm. You know, every day being the same, more or less one after the other in quarantine, it's getting at what, how surreal and, and, yeah. and dreamlike that was. And, and, if, and it, and it feels like a, like a lost year or a lost 18 months or however long you spent more or less quarantined. And, uh yeah, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. It's like, oh yeah, it's um I mean it, it's I think it's improved because then it becomes like the the refrain of this song that you hear if you stay to the end of the credits. Yeah. Not only a weird disruption of the plot of the movie at its climax, mm-hmm. followed by an epilogue. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's what it means to me. Is it means that's what it felt like at the height of COVID, which lasted a very long time. Mm -hmm. Feels like you're always asleep or maybe you're never asleep. Yeah. The whole, you know, day after day, the whole time. Mm -hmm. You're waiting for the next thing to happen. And it feels like it's never going to come. And I think also uh, when you are asleep, I feel like there is a certain amount of confrontation of your grief that's happening Mm. which is i feel like so you can't like confront your big feelings whether they be grief or whatever um unless you can't move on to wake up unless you sleep and like set like rest on them which i feel like is also then like related to that that cut scene that margot robbie does yes right exactly good movie uh, excellent movie. Um, oh, uh, I guess um, 
Do you, do you want to do rankings? I, I want to do rankings. and then Do rankings. Want... I don't remember mine, but I can tell you about where I think I put this. <laughs> I don't remember where I landed the last time. Okay, so so um, I said uh, when we did um, previous episodes with rankings that when when Wes Anderson had nine movies, mm-hmm. I characterized them as he had made three 10 out of 10 movies, three 9 out of 10 movies, and three other movies. Yeah. And then I put French Dispatch in the 9 out of 10 category. Yeah. And stuck it in the middle of my rankings. Yeah. So I haven't written this down. Let me see if I can do this. From the bottom up, it's like now there are 11. At the bottom, number 11 is Bottle Rocket. Number 10 is Isle of Dogs. Mm -hmm. Number nine is Life Aquatic. Number eight is the Darjeeling Limited. Mm -hmm. Number seven is French Dispatch. Number six is Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. Number five is... This is where I'm really getting into making a difference. Uh-huh. Number five is Rushmore. Number four is Asteroid City. Okay. Five out of five out of five stars, ten out of ten masterpiece. Yeah. Teetering on a nine. Nine and a half if there were such a thing, but there isn't. Yeah. Okay. Number so- number three is Moonrise Kingdom, number two is Royal Tenenbaums, number one is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. Assuming I remember my previous rankings correctly, another way of saying what I'm saying is my top three remains the same, and then Asteroid City is number four, and then everything else the same. That makes sense, yeah. I, I may think... have moved the French Dispatch, I don't remember. I'm going to go top down. Okay. Um, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is my favorite. Doesn't matter that it's not fair. <laughs> Understood. Fantastic Mr. Fox is number two. Moonrise Kingdom is number three. Though they are really, Moonrise Kingdom and Fantastic Mr. Fox are really fighting for those spots. Mm-hmm. That is um, fair. I think I give it to Fantastic Mr. Fox purely because of the technical achievement that that movie is. Yeah. Um. I th- yeah, I would say Grand Budapest is four. Hmm. Royal Tenenbaums 5. Mm-hmm. I would put Asteroid City at 6. Interesting. Yeah. French Dispatch at 7. I think mm. that I am more technically interested with what he's doing. And I think I'm more interested in the like genre conventions and how he uses the... Con- especially since those movies are so comparable. Since they're both his not genre in a movie... Not this genre in a movie genre. Mm-hmm. Play in magazine. I think Asteroid City does a little bit is a little bit more interesting, which makes sense because mm-hmm. it's sort of his second take at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, French Dispatch is seven. Darjeeling Limited is eight. Rushmore is nine. Bottle Rockets, 10. Isle of Dogs is 11. I really, I actually would say I don't like Isle of Dogs. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I don't like that movie. But like, if I were to be given that movie compared to a million other movies, I'd, I'd probably pick that one, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, there's plenty of, there's like, so many movies I'd watch over I'd watch I Love Dogs over those movies. Uh-huh. But, like, I just, like, don't have any plans to watch I Love Dogs again. Let me put it that way. 
Yeah, that's Unless fair enough. Unless we are doing another rewatch podcast. <laughs> Tempting. <laughs> but uh, like every uh, podcast episode that we do, I think the time has come to stop recording purely because we've been recording for so long and yep. <laughs> then um, continue the conversation uh, after the podcast is over. Of all the things we forgot to talk about. That's right. So Liz and I are going to do that now. And to the listeners, we say farewell. See you next month for something different. I don't know what. I hope maybe Liz does or will. (laughs) (laughs) I might have a controversial topic. We'll see. Ooh. All right. Look forward to that. (laughs) Okay. Love you, Will. Bye. Love you too. Bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngestofone. And his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com, and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram.